I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. This episode was recorded at CloudNativeCon and KubeCon in Austin, Texas. This is the biggest Kubernetes event to date. There were about 4,000 people there. It's part of the Linux Foundation, too. Today's topic is the role of a company's culture in how the engineers work. I talked to Diane Marsh, Director of Engineering at Netflix. This was interesting because part of the success from Netflix comes because of its culture. For example, they give engineers freedom, and by doing this, interesting systems have emerged throughout the company. We begin by talking about this and later explore the idea of developer velocity. We do this by looking at Spinnaker, a multi-cloud continuous delivery platform, as an example. This system was built at Netflix. Diane also explained the aspect from the Netflix culture that she finds the most useful when running an engineering organization. To learn more about the topics of the show, sign up for the monthly newsletter by going to thewomenintechshow.com. Thank you for listening. Here at KubeCon in Austin with Diane Marsh, Director of Engineering at Netflix. Diane, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. Thank you very much. We're going to be talking today about Netflix culture and the role it plays in the engineering processes. I read this famous culture deck from Netflix, which is pretty awesome. One example that I saw is freedom and responsibility. This is embedded in the Netflix culture. And even I see this across all the organization from giving the creators freedom in their shows, as well as engineers and how they build tools. Can you first give a quick overview of this Netflix culture? Sure. So freedom and responsibility is really a reflection of the fact that we believe that the people that are closest to the problem and will feel the impact of any one decision need to be the ones to make that decision. It means that we need to be really careful about being transparent about information because we need to make sure everyone has enough context to make that decision. So it's really about providing context across the entire organization so that those who are impacted the most can weigh in on it and eventually make that decision decide how to move forward. And a different approach of this would be some other team deciding for other teams? Yeah, so one example where we live the freedom and responsibility culture is we don't tell our engineering customers that they have to use any specific tool or that they have to follow any specific process. And we feel that that actually benefits us in many different ways. It means that the people who are using our tools are using them of their free will and because they find value in those tools. That motivates my team to build the right tools for those customers. And also, it means that the tools are shaped to meet those needs. We're really interested in figuring out how to build the most effective tooling for our in internal customers. Yeah, that answers the question. So this is instead of, oh, we've always used X technology in the past and it works stick with that technology. You're giving developers freedoms to even try new technologies, as long as it 
benefits Netflix, not just because it's a shiny new technology, right? Another benefit in supporting exploration and in not demanding that people follow any one process or any one tools is that it gives those developers the opportunity to find something better and to bring that back into the organization. If we described and enforced any sort of a process across all of our developers, that would effectively stymie innovation. In this case, we get to feel the benefit of engineers doing their own mini experiments and coming back and deciding what works. The cost of that can be in fragmentation. And so the engineers who are performing these experiments have to be really mindful of the fact that they're going off uh, on, on a different path and be thoughtful about what that means for the organization overall. And as director of engineering, you work on building tools that the other developers in Netflix use. And some of these tools make it to the open source community, for example, Spinnaker, which is a multi-cloud continuous delivery platform for releasing software really fast. Can you talk about the motivation of Spinnaker analogous to this whole cultural influence in Netflix? Yeah, Spinnaker, as you said, is a multi-cloud continuous delivery and infrastructure management platform. And I, I want to emphasize platform part of that because before Spinnaker, there was a tool called Asgard, which was widely accepted and widely used both internally and externally. It was a cloud deployment tool, an infrastructure management tool, but it didn't meet our needs in a couple of ways. One, it wasn't extensible enough, so we couldn't add flexibility into the tool very easily. And two, it was really built for a single region, um, single cloud provider environment, which meant that when other companies wanted to use the tool, they needed to fork it. And then we would lose the innovation that they would bring or put into that tool because they wouldn't be able to bring it back into the, the source code that we were using. And then the Asgard effectively served as a great proving ground for figuring out how to build the solution and the things that we needed to do in order to ensure that we weren't going to lose that innovation. And like you're saying, the earlier system were a single cloud provider, single region, and Spinnaker is much faster at these deployments, and it turns out it helped a lot, the developer velocity. Do you know by how much did it affect it? Like, was the deployment normally taking one day? And Is there a benchmark for this? I don't have those numbers at my fingertips. Okay. I can say that deployments have always actually been pretty fast. The problem is, wasn't necessarily that the deployment itself was slow. The problem was that we moved into a, a world where we needed to support multiple regions and being able to understand what was deployed in each one of those regions at a glance became incredibly important and really hard to follow from an Asgard standpoint. While we don't really benefit from the multi-cloud environment directly because we're all in Amazon, um, we do benefit from understanding that the general cloud deployment strategy across many different cloud providers brings us an abstraction that's important to understanding how to build Spinnaker. Yes, exactly. And this might even come in handy later on because there are some companies that use two cloud providers at once. So they use Google for something and AWS for something else. And 
it would be a quick switch, I think. Yeah, I think it would be um, probably very helpful for them as well. And yeah. to be very clear, we haven't put any effort ourselves into building these other cloud providers. Other companies such as Google and Microsoft and Pivotal have stepped up and implemented those other cloud providers. Where we gain the benefit is in that abstraction that sits on top of all of them. And as we were talking earlier, Spinnaker's handles some aspects of deployment. Kubernetes also handles some aspects of deployment. Do they overlap in functionality? Do you know? Kubernetes is actually using Spinnaker for deployment. Oh, so nice. you can't, at least there, I, I don't know if everyone does, but there is a, a Spinnaker cloud provider for Kubernetes that Google wrote. And so it's not that they're incompatible, it's actually that there is an avenue to do deployments on Kubernetes with, using Spinnaker. And I saw you mention when I was researching for this interview that what makes Spinnaker a unique product at Netflix is that you get to work with a remote team. How do you manage conflict in remote teams? The Netflix delivery engineering team is all on-site and Netflix employees. Where the remote piece comes into play for Spinnaker is in working with other community members who are developing in different areas across the world, actually. There's a team in Germany that's doing some development. There's a team in Norway, I think, that's doing some development. But the vast majority of development on Spinnaker has been in the U.S. from, you know, some major cloud providers and, and major companies such as Target and Google and, and Microsoft. In that case, it's like managing a really big project. There are meetings that happen between those um, community members. Andy's really great. Andy um, Glover is the leader of the delivery engineering project and of the delivery engineering team. And he's really great at pulling together that group of people on a very regular basis to make sure everybody knows what's going on, what our roadmap looks like, sharing that information within the community. He also brought together a summit of many people that are in the community earlier this year, and that gave the ability for these folks to share information among each other and really see how vibrant the community can be. I see. So for communicating with them and managing any conflict that might surface, what you're saying is sharing information constantly, which is also part of the Netflix culture, the context, right? Yeah, I think you really get, as a Netflix employee, you really start to embody those Netflix values in everyday life. And so it's not a stretch to use transparency for managing a big project, even externally. And Spinnaker has also partnered with Google, Microsoft, Pivotal, among other companies. What are some things to consider if you decide you want to establish a partnership with big companies like this? I think the biggest piece that you want to establish when you're working on a collaboration among companies at all is, is a sense of trust and an underlying commitment to doing the right thing for the community, doing the right thing for each of our individual companies. I think we're all grounded in providing business value to our companies. And then the community overall is helping us understand how that fits into the big picture. But just being welcoming and really emphasizing the need for trust and for behavior that's respectful across the entire community is, is super important to the longevity of that community. And Netflix started Spinnaker, I think, before a lot of people were talking about continuous delivery. And now this is a common conversation and there are several tools being developed in this space. 
Why does Netflix still need an in-house continuous delivery? When we started talking about implementing a continuous delivery solution back, I don't know, probably around 2013, um, we looked around to see what was available, and there wasn't a lot of choice. And we decided that we needed something that was all the things I mentioned. It needed to be very flexible and pluggable in terms of being able to add stages that we would need. It needed to be support multi-cloud so that we could build at the right level of abstraction. It needed to be open uh, so that we could really continue to grow. We thought there was a benefit in keeping it an open product so that we could continue to grow with the community rather than going off on our own and developing something in isolation that would also later become obsolete. We don't feel that Spinnaker is an internal product. We really feel that we have taken the needs that we had internally and built that into the product, but that it continues to grow with our needs and fortunately with the community's needs as well. And what are your thoughts on like you mentioned earlier, building something from scratch at the company versus if you don't find a solution that exactly meets your need, but maybe you can extend it because it happens to be open source? Absolutely. So our typical approach is to prefer to build versus buy for things that aren't in our core business model. In this case, there wasn't anything that was extensible enough that would fit our needs now or in the future. And so we had to jump into the build space. But as long as we were jumping into the build space, we were pretty happy that we were jumping into it with a lot of other companies that shared this idea of wanting to keep things in the open and wanting to build something that was great for the community and for everyone else, as well as for our companies. Versus a lockdown internal system. So. Yeah, lockdown internal system probably never really works at Netflix um, based on that conversation we had a few minutes ago around uh, we don't really mandate that anybody use anything. Um, That's true. And so the fact that 99% of our systems are using Spinnaker today at Netflix is really a testament to the fact that it's extensible enough for our community. Um, how do we get that long tail of that last 1%? Those products today, those services today at Netflix are typically stateful services that have a slightly different use case. We'll pull them in, but we needed to make sure that we solved the problems for the vast majority of our customers before we entered into that arena. Mm -hmm. And like we mentioned it briefly earlier, developer velocity is a very important concept at Netflix. Can you define what this means at the company, developer velocity? I like to think about developer velocity as being engineers being able to move as fast as they want to safely. And so I want to draw a distinction between speed and velocity. So I can go um, 60 miles an hour on a curvy road, but I'm really likely to crash, right? Okay. It would be better off, and I won't get to my destination as fast as I would if I had maintained a reasonable speed, right, for that particular situation. And so with velocity, I think it's actually the forward motion, the actual progress that you've made as opposed to measuring any individual speed. So the goal here is not to deploy services into the cloud as fast as possible. The goal is to be able to provide working code as fast as possible. And so you can imagine a situation where one of those stages includes testing. And if you were going for pure speed, you might skip the testing phase because that would slow you down. 
in the short term, right? But long term, of course you're going to move faster with code that's working because you're not going to have that rework stage. And so I really want to talk about velocity as something that talks about that forward momentum, not stopping and starting and trying to get the most speed out of every individual element without regard for what the end game is. Yeah. Or without compromising the quality, the current quality. Absolutely. We don't want to compromise quality at all. Okay. And how does developer velocity translate to management decisions? Do you think about that a lot? We think about developer velocity a lot. We're in an industry where we continue to have a shortage of software engineers. Yeah. And so it's in our best interest to make sure that we help our developers to be as productive as possible. And I'm not talking about squeezing every ounce of work they could possibly do out of them because that's not productive. Right? What we want to do is we want people to have the ability to focus on the problem they're trying to solve and not think about the areas underlying that that doesn't demand their attention. If we can take on some of the responsibility for things that we can do best and let them focus on recommendations engines or data science or any of the multitude of things that engineers need to work on, then we're improving developer velocity because we're making it possible for them to provide that focus. And maybe those individual engineering teams don't need to have quite so many people to solve that problem and we can actually bring some of that functionality back into the centralized teams to benefit everyone. Okay. And how do you measure developer velocity? Do you have like a list of benchmarks? Like this month it takes, I don't know, three minutes to deploy, that's our benchmark, or things like that? Measuring developer velocity is difficult. Okay. It doesn't mean that there's not a reason to do it. It just means that it's difficult. Yeah, we can evaluate the cost of any particular stage in a pipeline, for example, or any particular phase of development. We can and should do that. But ultimately, we want to be really careful not to worry about the problem that we don't have, right? Yeah. And we also, my leadership reminds me continually that we don't need to have hard numbers about data for a problem. We know this is a problem, and so this is going to sound really weird. It doesn't necessarily need to be measurable to know that we've had an impact. Yeah. And I think that that's counter to what you hear from a lot of other companies who are data-driven. Um, we're very data-driven in our product, but we know that there are some low-hanging fruit that we can address right now, and we don't even need to figure out those specific numbers, if that makes sense, those specific numbers around velocity don't need to be measured in order to yeah. justify our work. And I think that that's freeing because figuring out how to get numbers to any one of these particular aspects is, it's challenging and can also be a little bit wrong in terms of the answer you're getting might not actually reflect reality, but it's the best you have, so you just say that it does. And I want to be very careful not to do that. Okay. I think also part of what helps this is that now we're living at a time where it's more normal to shift companies. Before it used to be like, pick a company and stick with it 20 years. Now people are shuffling around and they bring perspectives from other companies like, oh, the build used to take less time there. These are some improvements, I think, right? Developers themselves notice it when they come like, wow, this is super fast, or they might find other things to improve and things like that, I think. 
Yeah, I think there are lots of opportunities for improvement in it. I think what you said is very important. I think we do get benefit from people coming in from other companies. We get this diverse perspective, and I think that's really important to pushing us on building the best possible tools that we can have. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about managing an engineering organization. As I mentioned earlier, there's this famous culture deck from Netflix, and a lot of people have taken some things from it and incorporated it in their own companies. What's one aspect that you found the most useful when running the engineering organization? I think the most useful piece of the culture deck, if you took everything else out and you left it down to one element, I think that context not control is one of the most important um, scalable elements of the culture deck because with context not control, what you are embodying is all of the things I mentioned before. Freedom and responsibility You can't have freedom and responsibility if you don't have context, right? I can't make the right decisions for the company, for my team, for my product, if I don't have enough context. And if I'm controlling, if I'm a manager who leads by control, then I'm stifling innovation. I'm potentially reducing our ability to be able to take in new ideas and improve things and make things better. And so I think if I had to distill it down to one element, it would be context, not control. What do you think about context in the sense of, well, I don't know exactly how the iPhone was developed, but I've read about it and it was super locked down. Apparently people that were working on core components of it, like the OS, didn't even know it was a phone. So... Well, it worked for that company, right? But I, I would say that it wouldn't work for me, that I think that we can all make better decisions in the large, right? By having an understanding about what the overall context is, we'll be able to apply that to our situation and build the right solution for any of those individual situations that will translate into the biggest, the best global decision. Instead of having these micro decisions that are based on incomplete knowledge and hoping that that rolls up mm -hmm. into a, an overall uh, product that makes sense, yeah. I feel like it's better for me personally to be able to see the, the big picture. And I love seeing how I and my team provide impact to Netflix. I think that it, it makes us more engaged as a, as a team. It makes us understand the value that we bring. And I think that when we understand the value that we bring, we're more interested in contributing. More motivation, I think. Absolutely. If people knew they were working on the iPhone, maybe they would be more motivated. I don't know. Let's talk a bit about the risks of giving a lot of freedom to engineers. One thing that I think of is Maybe it's not so risky at Netflix because you're getting top hires. What about if you don't have top hires? Do you think there's some risk there? Or when do you know to give freedom to engineers? Absolutely. I think that's a great question. I think that looking at the culture deck, which a lot of people have and have tried to embody particular aspects of it in their culture, I think that it's hard to take certain elements out of that culture and apply them to a very different scenario. You can try, but I'm not sure that you'll have the success, right? It's like saying, oh, this worked, we're just going to have a recipe for this, um, yeah, exactly. except that we're going to use gluten-free flour instead, and I'm sure it's going to taste just the same. I think that we really need to think about how those individual elements work together. And it might be that the elements are woven together in a fabric that only makes sense 
um, together. Or it might be that certain elements can get pulled out and they'll be just as successful. I don't know the answer to that question. Or you might, let's say you read the deck and you find this freedom, maybe you decide to try it with one person at the company, like your top performer, like let's give that person more freedom and then see what happens. If it didn't work out, then sort of take that freedom. Yeah, the danger of thinking that you could pull out the freedom piece okay. and give it to top performers would be that you would be dismissive of the fact that Netflix engineers overall don't have a hierarchy and that we expect and respect the opinions of everyone as the same, everyone has the same title, senior software engineer. And so oh, nice. we don't introduce, uh, oh, that person is a principal engineer, that person is a staff engineer, so they're, we value them more or their opinion means more. Instead, yeah. I think that by respecting everybody's opinion the same, we actually do invite healthy debate um, I also think that one of the aspects of freedom or responsibility, one of the reasons why it works at Netflix is that we hire experienced software engineers for the most part. And so these are people who have come from other companies. They've grown up in those other companies and learned what those boundaries are, what it looks like to be a, a great engineer, what it looks like to be an employee. They also bring some battle scars about where things didn't work. And I think that we benefit from that commingling and understanding about what other companies look like in order to build that understanding of, of what responsibility looks like. Freedom's easy. Responsibility is hard. That's right? true. And they come together, freedom and responsibility. Yeah, you can't have, effectively, you can't have freedom without responsibility because then it would just be chaotic. Right, true. So before we finish, one last thing that I read about is the way a technical failure is handled at Netflix and I want you to walk through what would happen. Let, let's say there's an outage right now. What's the dialogue happening between the engineers? So when we have an outage, there is an ongoing incident mm -hmm. that is managed on a chat channel as well as on a phone, and it's reflected in email as well. And I think it's been really beneficial for me to watch those in action even before I was involved in any, yeah. because it's really important to see how those transpire. When we're in an outage, there is a single solitary focus, which is get the system back online. Yeah. Right? Make sure that all of our customers can stream and that they can feel like they're having a great experience with Netflix. And so that singular focus is something that we really adhere to. This is the one place where the fact that there's no hierarchy and that everybody has freedom to go off and do their own thing is really suspended. Yeah. In an outage, there is somebody who's managing that outage who is calling the shots and making sure that everybody stays on task. Yeah. Do not deep dive into the cause of the outage right now. There's gonna be time for that. Right now, get it back online. And so we've developed a lot of tools that'll help us shorten that cycle. One of those things is we can do an active-active failover. So we run our service active-active so that we could fail over to another region at any time in the event that there's a problem in one region. Normally, we wouldn't do that as a first element, as a, as a first approach. Um, we're doing that when we can't in any reasonable time frame, figure out what the problem is. So we don't know yet what the problem is and we don't have time to figure that out because we don't want to disrupt customers for very long. And so we'll fail over to another region and then use that time to figure out how to get the bad region back up. 
and like you said there's a focus on how to get it back up not like who was the last person that touched this code and who's responsible and sort of blaming it on what team. It's completely irrelevant who caused the problem at that time. Let's figure out how to get it back up and running. And then later we'll have an incident review where we'll talk through the timeline of what happened, figure out what went wrong. And honestly, those um, incident reviews need to be blameless. And so we, we have an expectation that we should only have a problem exist or um, happen once, the same sort. So we should really address that problem as soon as possible. And so the whole idea of a blameless incident review is in figuring out that this was a unique problem and figuring out how we're going to approach it so that it doesn't happen again. And it's not a scenario where there's always a clear answer. Yeah, there's probably somebody who did something yeah. that was you know wrong that caused the outage. And you could that person probably feels pretty bad. But what I've seen in incident reviews is that other people will step up and say, you know, yeah, you know, you you did this thing that caused this outage. You changed this fish property and it caused this outage. But we could have built better tooling to give you better visibility into what you were doing. And so we kind of share some of that burden. And we'll before this happens again, we'll build some safeguards and some guardrails into the system so that you can have more context about yeah. what you were going to do. And I think that's really important that everybody sits in an incident review and says, what could I do better to have prevented this problem rather than, oh, that person over there, they did something that really caused an outage. Shame, shame, right? So it shouldn't be shameful. Because it's blameless. People think, how could I have helped prevent this? Like you said, the tooling maybe, or maybe the font size is too small, or even small things like that, I think. I don't know. Exactly. All right. All right. Well, Diane, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you.